0: If you would like to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy 4, that's where we'll be reading from, the first 10 verses of the chapter. And as I mentioned last week, really after you finish the argument of 1 Timothy 3, you have all of the undergirding theology of 1 Timothy pretty well established. And so the rest of the letter becomes more application of earlier doctrine, which means uh, all the doctrine we've already unpacked is uh, going to be a lot easier to make reference to and therefore we can move through more text as we as we get later into the, the letter. So I'll be reading uh, the first 10 verses and in this case, I uh, will uh, I have the ESV in front of me, but uh, I actually really like the translation of uh, the author of this, uh, it's called the PNTC Commentary. I just think he translates the text pretty well, so I'll be reading out of that translation just for our uh, introductory reading. So. Uh, The text says, the spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything that God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the Word of God and by prayer. If you point out these things to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing then to do with godless myths and old wives' tales, but rather train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life And for the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we all labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people, and especially of those who believe." So these are the verses we'll be uh, diving into tonight. If I was to to put one idea in front of you that I think this this text gets at, uh, it is the pursuit of endurance. So as Christians, uh, we are called to endure faithfully. Uh, that's a command seen all over the place in scripture. But here Paul turns his attention to Timothy and encourages him and his followers and his church to the pursuit of endurance. And if you look particularly at the, the text where we where it talks about disciplining oneself for this purpose, for this end, uh, Paul seems to think that endurance is not just something that happens to a Christian by God's providence, but also something that a Christian is actively in pursuit of and endurance is not just something that uh, you you end up with that result at the end of your Christian life by happenstance or by providence alone. Uh, it's also by let's say active discipline towards enduring faithfully. That's why he writes to warn him from false teaching and also encourage him towards sound teaching. And so that's what we're going to be talking about tonight: the pursuit of endurance, and uh, the the point of of Paul in his whole uh, letter to Timothy is to establish the grounds or the foundation of a healthy Christian church, and also healthy individual Christians within that Christian church. And we would observe, I think, from the thrust of First Timothy so far, that at this point, Paul is saying healthy Christians and healthy Christian churches are not just a flash in the pan. They're not just this momentary burst of uh, passion, zeal, emotion, doctrine, which then peters out over time. A healthy Christian and a healthy Christian church has this endurance quality to it. It has a steady plodding regularity to it. And that's something that marks health in the church or health in the believer's life. I'm sure each of you, if you've been around Christians for any length of time, can think of a person or maybe persons who maybe with embrace with great zeal the truths of Christianity, perhaps the lifestyle of Christianity, perhaps many disciplines like reading of the Bible and prayer and disciplining oneself away from temptation and sin and that might last with a burst for maybe a week, 2 weeks, a month, maybe a couple of years, maybe a decade. And then sometime later, depending how long that goes on for, that can in some cases lead to this like slowly fading light that eventually leads to someone who turns away from the faith and abandons it. Or it's a very big flash in the pan where as soon as the emotional Aspect of Christianity subsides, someone turns away and says, I don't think this is worth it anymore. I don't I don't feel like I have a tight relationship with God. I'm not going to really discipline myself in, in these ways anymore. And then you meet them a year or two later and they've totally abandoned anything resembling Christianity. And what what Paul's saying here is that's not healthy Christianity. Uh, a healthy Christian might experience emotional zeal, uh, an emotional endorphin rush at, at some points, so let's say even uh, high states of great worship and, and faithfulness and fellowship with God. But what marks healthy Christian maturity, healthy Christians, is this kind of steadiness to their relationship with the Lord. And here it's marked by the endurance until the end. So uh, he's going to do this in two ways. In the first five verses, he's going to talk about false teachers and how we ought to be uh, avoid their false teaching. So one way you can endure faithfully to the end is not by being deceived by false teaching. And then the other way is to embrace true teaching. So this is a pretty simple argument from Paul. So the first five verses, he's gonna warn Timothy about the false teachers that will be up and coming and we've even seen him allude to earlier in the letter. So he says, uh, verse one, the Spirit expressly says that in the later times or in the later days or in latter times, that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, earlier in first Timothy, he's already made allusions to men like this in Timothy's context, where he says that Timothy, there are people in your context who are obsessed with endless genealogies and all this kind of controversy. Uh, so you already know of this. And he's, he's basically saying, you know, it's going to keep getting worse. That's going to continue to build. Uh, don't think that that's just going to go away when you refute the false teachers. One time in the latter times, there will be those who depart from the faith and they will do so by devoting themselves to these false spirits and false teachings. And so why does he tell Timothy this? Well, because he's telling Timothy this so that Timothy can recognize it. And remember, it's Timothy's job to not just recognize it, but also to teach against it, to rebuke it and to teach contrary to those doctrines. So he's warning him, this is going to happen. It's going to crop up. And these men will also not be just described by the submission to, let's say, demonic teaching, demonic spirits, but also um, they will have seared consciences. We've talked about this uh, several times in 1 Timothy now, but false teachers are not just those who believe false things, but it also gets into the ungodliness of their life so that they don't even feel bad condoning sin, approving of sin, approving of all kinds of uh, sinful behaviors and actions because they have consciences that are seared. They don't, they don't get affected by feeling guilty or shameful about the actions and sins that they uh, commit. And, they, uh, and their consciences are seared such that, verse 3, they will forbid marriage and they will require abstinence from certain foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So they're going to take parts of God's good creation, marriage and food, two basic parts of God's good creation, and they're going to say these are things that are off limits for whatever reason. Now, this is clearly false teaching to say that marriage is off limits and that certain foods are off limits because it's all part of God's creation. God has given it as a gift to his people. And so the false teachers say these good gifts that God has given are not for his people to enjoy. There are things that ought to be put off. So this false teaching seems to be something like asceticism, which is uh, when you put off things that are good because you think it makes you more godly and holy. So uh, in, in the case of not marrying, uh, they're saying that marriage is actually something that takes you away from godliness. So don't marry, don't give into that pleasure, and instead devote yourself to, let's say, a monastic kind of lifestyle where you uh, don't marry, you you don't you don't at all engage in that, and you simply devote yourself to prayer and, and living on your own. And then uh, with with limiting what kind of foods you eat, it's, it's the same kind of thing. Take things that God has given for his people to enjoy, food uh, and drink and, and all the rest, and say these are off limits and you, and you can't, have, can't have access to it. And maybe if you maybe you can, but you'll have a less real and true and pure experience of God if, if you do so. This, this is marking false teachers. They, they demand more law than God requires. And that's why probably in the early parts of 1 Timothy, Paul is careful to talk about the law of God and say, here's what the law of God says, how you walk in godliness. And so don't add to that by, by putting these weird commands on you can't marry and you can't eat certain foods. And we certainly see those kinds of false teachings. It's not just true in Timothy's day. Those kinds of false teachings echo throughout the ages of the church. Uh, it, it's funny how false teachers don't have a, a very robust toolkit, so they kind of default to the same kinds of deceptions the whole time. So even in Timothy's day, while this is the false teaching that he faces, that echoes throughout the history of the church in, as, a, as a sure mark of false teaching, elevating things which are not at all taught in the law of God as things which are required for godliness, such as uh, saying marriage is bad or certain foods are bad. And then what Paul does is he corrects the teaching and he says, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now, we shouldn't make that a universal statement to say that now Paul is, is welcoming all kinds of sins so long as you thank God for the sin. He's talking about neutral things, things that are cre- in God's created world as good things, things we ought to, we ought to enjoy. And he's saying, of those things, this is, this is good. Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected. It is to be received with thanksgiving. That's correcting the false teacher saying these things are actually bad. But that doesn't mean that Christians just enjoy pleasure or hedonism in marriage or in the eating of food. Uh, We thank God, the ultimate giver of those gifts, uh, for the gifts that he gives. And that's what I think he means when he says in verse 5, these things, the marriage and uh, food, they are made holy or they are consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. All that that is saying is, if you're informed by the word of God, and you have a communal relationship with God in prayer, uh, you're going to have a right view of these things that the, the ministry of the word and the ministry of prayer orients you to see marriage rightly, it orients you to see food rightly, really it orients you to see aspects of God's good creation rightly so that the word of God and prayer sanctify or consecrate these things which we can rightly enjoy as Christians. So uh, one of the great ways to deal with false teaching uh, is to be immersed in the word of God and in prayer. It's a great way to inoculate yourself to the false teaching uh, and, and just be done away with it. But then he's going to now turn, and in in a more positive sense, uh, turn to what Timothy should do. So he's he's now inoculated him against the false teaching. And then in verses 6 through verse 10, he's going to talk more about what Timothy ought to do, let's say, more actively in his context. So he says uh, to Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. That word servant, by the way, is worth noting. That's, uh, you would be a good deacon of Christ Jesus. We've talked uh, about how that word has a range of meanings in, in uh, several weeks ago. Here he's saying that Timothy is in some sense a deacon of Christ Jesus by ministering the word. Uh, and so here it's the informal use of the word. He's a servant, a minister of God. And how he is a faithful minister or a good minister is by taking these truths from Paul in front that he's been entrusted with and simply putting them before the brothers and sisters, the people in his congregation, the church. Uh, If he puts them before them, uh, he is being faithful, a good minister. And uh, then Paul kind of has this paraphrastic statement, uh, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. So, Timothy, you've been trained in the faith and in the doctrine that I've given to you. Uh, So put those before your church members. So Timothy's job is not just to refute false teaching, but also to give the church access to right and sound teaching. Both of those are part of his responsibility. And then he's gonna underscore something he said in chapter one, have nothing then to do with irreverent and silly myths, uh, as the translation I read from in the beginning, silly myths or old wives tales. Uh, Don't have anything to do with these kinds of nonsense theories about genealogies and all kinds of mysticism. Um, Rather, instead instead of that, Discipline yourself with godliness or train yourself for godliness. So uh, don't get caught up in the minutia conspiracy theories about scripture and all the rest, Timothy. Stick to the meat and potatoes of the faith. Discipline yourself for godliness. Uh, this is, uh, I would say, one of the things that he, he will echo back later um, in the text uh, of 1 Timothy chapter 4. Where he says in verse 16 keep a close watch on yourself and on your teaching persist in this for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers so he's underscoring for timothy the importance of not just sound theology but as we've said in weeks prior sound theology is intimately connected with sound living sound practice so to discipline oneself for godliness is connected to having right theology just like Disciplining yourself, we would say, for ungodliness, like the false teachers say, discipline yourself by not marrying and not eating certain foods. Paul's saying, don't listen to that discipline. Discipline yourself rightly for godliness. And then he's going to use a connection, an argument from the lesser to the greater. He's saying bodily training is of some value. So bodily training is valuable. But godliness is valuable in every way. So an argument from the lesser to the greater, we might say this way, if you know that disciplining yourself uh, in physical exercise yields results and health benefits and certain kinds of lifestyle benefits in your own life, how much more would disciplining yourself in your faith yield benefits in every aspect of your life? Uh, and where, whereas we can recognize discipline in physical training is a good thing, a necessary thing for one to see progress, oftentimes Christians have a harder time recognizing discipline in godliness or spirituality as a good thing. Sometimes we think about that as just rote religion or mindless religion. But Paul's saying discipline is a good thing. It's part of a healthy, balanced uh, Christian walk. So discipline is related to maturity in faith. Or I might say it this way, discipline is part of what it means to pursue endurance to the end. As a Christian, then, you have to discipline yourself. And that could take a number of forms, but very basically, you have to discipline yourself to know God's word. You have to discipline yourself to obey God's word. And you have to discipline yourself to persist in both of those prior activities. Discipline is what it, part of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Christians cannot be undisciplined and expect success. In the same way that a professional athlete could not be undisciplined and expect success in their career pursuit, a Christian should not expect a, an undisciplined Christianity to yield any kind of fruit in their life. And then he's going to double down, uh, and he's going to say v- from verse 9, this saying, what I'm telling you, Timothy, is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now, he said that elsewhere in 1 Timothy to, to kind of underscore the importance of what he's saying, almost like a double down, pay attention to what I just said, it's really important. And here he says it again, right? Godliness, discipline yourself, it is, this is a trustworthy saying. You can, you can take that to the bank, Timothy. And then uh, verse 10 takes us to kind of the close of his thrust. And he's going to echo that same language of discipline. For to this end, we toil and strive. That's a language, right? To this end, we discipline ourselves. To this end, we toil and strive. And now, remember, earlier he tells Timothy, you need to discipline yourself. Uh, train yourself, Timothy. He's, he's using a more command. And then in verse 10, he includes, the, uh, uh, he includes himself in that context. He says, to this end, we toil and strive. So Paul's tell, telling Timothy, Timothy, you should discipline yourself but I'm not telling you to do something that I'm not doing. We all toil and strive to this end because we have our hope set on the living God. Now that, that argue, uh, anchors what he's saying here about disciplining yourself. Back in what he said at the end of chapter three, we discipline ourselves because, verse 16 of chapter three, because of the mystery of godliness, that Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed in the world, uh, believed on, and taken up in glory. Because of all that Jesus accomplished, we discipline ourselves. Because of the doctrine that leads to godliness, which is Christ, we discipline ourselves for godliness. So the foundation and anchor of our godliness is that our hope is set on the living God, who in some sense is the foundation of our our discipline. And then we get into uh, a difficult text and um, one that I hope you'll bear with me on for a moment. And he's going to comment now about Jesus. He says, who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, we have to ask the question, what does it mean that God is the savior of people, but let's say uh, more so the savior of those who believe, or especially of those who believe? And uh, there's probably about four different ways you could translate this. Uh, Timothy, as we've seen elsewhere, is a difficult book to translate at points because of all the doctrinal implications you, you get to. So there's, there's probably one good way to resolve it, and there's uh, other ways that have been proposed to resolve it. I'll give you what I, what I think it is, and if you have questions, I'd be more than happy to give you some of the alternative options. But when he says that God is the Savior of all people, the immediate thing that, as, as Protestant Christians were tempted to do, is to impute justification language into this, that God saves all people, and then especially those who believe. But how can someone be saved by God and in a special way, if they're not saved by God at all, right? So it, it create that creates a little bit of a of a challenge, but the word that's translated here, savior, uh, simply means in the New Testament protector or a provider. So God is the protector, and ultimately, as that relates to justification, He protects His people, He saves them, He is their savior. But in this case, it doesn't have to mean savior in a in a salvific sense. It could could read something like this: God is the protector of all people, but particularly, or especially, he is the protector of those who believe. Uh, Maybe the the way that theologians have worked at this out in the past, God gives his grace to all men. He gives grace, uh, he he causes it to rain on the just and the unjust. He provides food for the just and the unjust. He gives the common joys of life to the just and to the unjust. He protects all mankind, all men, because he's a good, loving God. But if you're asking where is his particular affection and salvation, it is particularly aimed in a loving sense at those who are his, his people, those who believe. So he is the protector of all people. But if you're asking who, he's, who is the salvific protector of, who is the a special protector of, it is those who believe. I think it's the best way to, to make sense of the text. Um, thus, we're not saying that God saves all people uh, and then double saves those who believe. What we're saying is he's the protector of all mankind, undoubtedly so. He's the God who creates and sustains the cosmos. But particularly, he redeems his people. He saves them. And so with that in mind, uh, this is Paul's confidence, right? We set our hope on the living God because he is especially the protector of those who believe. And as he's writing to Timothy and to Timothy's audience, that serves as a comfort because this God is not abstract and far away from them. He is their particular savior. He's the one who's intimately involved in saving them. So that when he exhorts Timothy to discipline himself, this is not Timothy striving on his own to merit salvation. Uh, this is not Timothy's audience striving to earn favor before God. This is God being savior and saying, therefore, on the foundation of that, pursue faithfulness, pursue godliness. It's a, it's a much more out of the love and godliness that I have established, live in that, walk in that. Uh, it's much more free kind of way to experience life in Christ. Uh, With that, uh, let's uh, close in prayer and we can get into some discussion. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, your word, uh, which is living and active and uh, in many cases challenging to us. And we pray as we submit ourselves to your word that you would give us um, care in the handling of it. Uh, You give us uh, ears to hear all that you have to say within its teaching and within its pages. And Lord, that you would be honored and glorified in our lives and in our conduct. Not just in what we say and what we believe, but ultimately in how we, how we live in obedience to your word. We pray this uh, all in your name. Amen.